Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, our children's pastor at Gate City Church, Christopher Peterson, dives into number 17. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. All right, so it's fun to be here. Casey, uh, I'm a little intimidated because Casey talks so highly of you guys all of the time. He asked me to do this way back, uh, it was several months ago, I uh, asked him, where do you want me to share out of? And then he said, we're going to be in Numbers 17. Um, I don't think you guys are in number 17 yet, are you? Yet, here we are, number 17, uh, which brought me to just a, just a quick uh, little, little kind of a little fun fact for you. Anybody know where math was first mentioned in the Bible since we talk about numbers? Anybody? Math. Anybody know where math was first mentioned in the Bible? No one? All right, Mickey Ounce, you think you know? Go ahead. So he's going to like numbers. That just made me think of math. So actually, uh, it's kind of cool because uh, math is associated with the curse. Anybody like calculus? Because I sure don't. It feels like it's a curse. So um, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. And if you remember, God told them to go forth and multiply. I'm just, go forth. All right. So that being said, some other fun facts. Uh, It's called numbers because it records the first two censuses. That's the number of God's people. The Hebrew title for the book is Bebendabar, which means desert or in the wilderness. And it covers the period of time uh, the children of God wandered in the wilderness. Uh, Numbers is the book between God's people being given the law, um, how to live, and then entering the promised land. So uh, it's interesting, uh, that time from when you are delivered from what you were, ready, they were slaves, and possessing what you are can be a very difficult period of time. Can I get an amen on that? I'm sure a lot of you guys realize that just in this season of life, what you once were and what you will be, that period right there uh, can be difficult. And Numbers kind of covers that deal. So it, um, it speaks of God's goodness, the goodness of God. He protects, he preserves, he provides uh, the possessions of the promise took place. Who likes God's That's goodness? what I'm talking about. I am a children's pastor, so there will be some videos just to keep you awake. You get 90 kids in here, you've got to keep them awake. So who likes the goodness of God? Thank you. We got, we got one person. Woo! Right? Numbers does absolutely, when you read it, as you read it, you will see the goodness of God. Okay? So uh, it is good. Uh, We love a big, heaping helping of God's goodness. But Numbers uh, also talks about God's wrath. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned 600 times. You're in trouble, mister. All right. Apparently you guys didn't watch Full House. My, My daughters did. 600 times. And Numbers also speaks of the severity of God. A generation of disobedient people did not get to enter to the promised land. Raise your hand if you understand that God will not be mocked. 
I think our actions do matter. I think it's very easy sometimes to forget that what we do today will matter later. What you do today for Jesus will depend on what you will receive later from Jesus in eternity as you rule and reign with him. So it is important that we understand the severity of God. A generation of disobedient people did not enter the promised land. Uh, they died in the desert. See, like some of the really mature people here in our church, they get visions, right? But here's, I'll read the scripture and I get video clips. So I'm just reading numbers. And if you remember, Korah, he decides to get 250 people to rebel. And what happens to them? To get swallowed up. So as I'm reading that, I'm just thinking, dude, that's that Star Wars scene. Just swallowed up. So here's the reality. Uh, God is good, but God does judge. And what we do matters, and numbers shows us that. 250 people were swallowed up in the desert because of their disobedience. God is not a timeout guy. Anybody got parents that discipline them? I can't tell you how I discipline because then you guys would think I was mad, you know, like a bad person. But there is discipline, right? And, and God is not a timeout kind of God where he just puts you in the corner. There is ramifications to our actions. And if you don't believe me, let's just go to Romans 14, 11 to 12. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. But that's a sobering verse, is it not? There is going to come a day where Christopher Peterson will stand in his presence alone and without excuse, and he will give an account for everything. How did I use my gifts? How did I use my talents? How did I use my opportunities? How did I do that? I will give an account. That is just, um, it's just sobering, and it should help us live for him right? Because how we live for Jesus today will depend on what we receive from him later. Here's Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's a pretty cool verse right there. Gives us some insight. Boy, if we live for the flesh, we shouldn't be surprised when we struggle with issues, should we? I think sometimes if I'm struggling with something, I ought to be asking myself, what are you living for? Because if that's what you're feeding, the verse says, that is what is going to happen. It's going to reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Not easy to do good, but raise your hand if you understand that there is a reward, if you will. Don't give up. For God will reward. My pages are sticking together. Here we go. We will give an account in the book of Numbers, as you read it, and as you guys get into it, since we're way ahead right now, should do away with cheap grace. Anybody know what cheap grace is? I got a little, uh, I think I have one. No. Oh, yes, I do. Go. Cheap Grace by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Cheap Grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, 
absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate in us. Cheap grace is a grace where there is no change. We are to be a new creation in Christ. And that's just a great thing uh, that I'll do often is just look at my life because if I am saved, there should be change. You guys realize that. I'm not saved by what I do, but what I do shows that I am what? Saved. You should be. If if you are the same person, you need to give, you need to have the Lord, have the Holy Spirit search you. So we're going to get into the into our message here in Numbers. In uh, the book of Numbers, we have uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and that equals the presence of God. Now, in the in the Ark, in the uh, the present, which is the presence of God, here's what we have: we have the Ten Commandments, we have a jar of manna, we have Aaron's staff that budded. That's just what we're going to be talking about today: Aaron's staff that budded. Now, the presence of God is experienced in. Um, here's what kind of the Lord gave me. So we've got the presence of God. That is the Ark of the Covenant equals the presence of God. So the uh, presence of God is experienced in our obedience to the Word of God. That is the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand if you understand that. You want to experience the presence of God, there needs to be obedience to the Word of God. The presence of God is also experienced, according to the Ark, in the blessings and provisions from God. That would be the jar of manna. Who's ever felt the presence of God as he's blessed you or you're in his presence, right? So there is obedience to his word. There's the blessings from God. And then the uh, presence of God is experienced to those who are set apart by God for God. And that would be Aaron's staff, right? So that is the presence of God. It is in, found in those three things. So staff equals the symbol of authority. We're going to be talking about his staff in just a second. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff was used to comfort, to guide, and to correct. Exodus 7, 8 to 10. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become like a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Exodus 7, 19 to 20. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of the wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and the water was changed to blood. So all through Exodus, we see that the staff is a symbol of God's power. Now, God's love is not about us. It is a gift for us. So let me ask a question. Aaron is going to be selected to be the high priest. Was Aaron selected because of his awesomeness? I don't think so. There we go. I know so. Anybody remember what Aaron did a few chapters earlier? I don't know if you remember in Exodus. They go up. They're invited to go to the mountain. 
and why they're up there. The presence of God is literally on the mountaintop. There's rumblings and thunder. And what does Aaron tell the people to do? Because remember, I want you to take the gold God gave us as slaves on the way out. I want you to bring me the gold, and I am going to make a calf. Think Chick-fil-A. That's what I was thinking. Chick-fil-A calf. And then we're going to make a golden calf. That's the best he had. And then here's what the word says. The Hebrew words literally would describe a party that would be an NR. Like you can't even go to that if you're under 17. We're talking nudity and all kinds of other naughty things. That's what he's doing at the foot of the mountain as the presence of God is there with the gold that God gave them. That's Aaron just a few chapters later. So raise your hand if you understand that being used by God is not because you're awesome. It's because, he, and, and that should make you feel good. God's love is not about you because then I have to earn it. It's a gift for you. That is so much better. So he's not selected because of his awesomeness. In a world with participation trophies, anybody get a, particip a participation trophy growing up? Look at that. No, really? See, when I was growing up, guess how you got trophies? You won them. And when you didn't win, guess what you were called? Uh, I'm just saying. That's literally what happened. You're like, hey, winner, hand up. And then everyone looked at you and you're like, you want to raise my hand? Uh, no, you lost. Right? So in a world with participation trophies, it is easy to forget about our depravity and remember about God's generosity. So let's go into Numbers 17, 1 through 5. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on the staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meetings before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus, I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you." So notice that God is going to do the choosing. He is going to accomplish the supernatural. He is going to make the staffs literally do what? Bud, sprout. But that doesn't mean God does not require something from Aaron. They had to bring their staff. So here's your truth. You can't do what God does. Can I get an amen? You can't. But God is not going to do what he's told you to do. Yes. And so I'm here to say that oftentimes in my life, if I feel like, man, am I missing something? A great place to start would be, I don't know, what am I not doing that the Lord has told me to do? Where am I not serving where the Lord has asked me to serve? Where am I not giving where the Lord has asked me to give? Where am I not going where the Lord has not, where, where the Lord has asked me to go? What have I not let go of that the Lord has told me to let go of? The Lord does the supernatural, but oftentimes I am missing out on what God wants to do because I have not done my part. Does that make sense? And we're like, oh, God said, you know, we sit around and we don't do anything. He's like, yeah, and you're supposed to do this. 
And so we're waiting because we haven't done what God told us to do. Let me ask a question. Aaron doesn't bring his rod in, his staff. Does his staff bud? Does he get selected as high priest? No. Supernatural happens. Only God can do that. But we must do what God has called us to do. So I would just encourage you to get in the habit when things aren't going the way you want. Anybody find themselves in that place? Dude, check. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, is there something I'm not doing that I should be? Is there something you told me not to do that I am? Am I bringing my staff to the table, if you will? God won't do what he has told you to do. Are you flowing in or fighting against the process of God? Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 3.9, for we are God's fellow workers, co-laborers. 2 Corinthians 6.1, as God's co-workers, laborers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. We are co-laborers, not because God needs us, but because we need God. We need faith in God. We need obedience to God so that we can experience results from God. I was thinking, just why does God use us? It's funny, uh, I've got little kids, and when a parent asks a little kid to do something, does it make the job better or worse? We got other kids are like, I, I, better, no, worse, like way worse, takes more time. So why? Why does the parent do that? Spend time with their child, grow with their child, teach their child things. It's not because the father needs it. That's the last thing he needs. It's because the son needs it. It's as they work and do things together that you learn, that he shows you, that you fail, and then he can correct you and he can encourage you. It's in the doing that you become good at the being, if that makes sense. God parted the Red Sea because Moses held out his staff. God gave victory over the Amalekites because Moses held up his arms. God knocked down the walls of Jericho because the Israelites did what? Marched around the city. Who did the supernatural? Who did the simple? What simple thing are you not doing today? That's just a, uh, just a quick question. You should write that down. Maybe as you go home. What simple thing are you just not doing? Because I would just tell you the supernatural is done by God. What we do is so often really super simple. It's just simple. Simple acts of obedience. Simple acts of obedience. So let's go to verse nine. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people. Of Israel. And they looked and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimonies to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. 
And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die, are we all to perish. So here's the deal. The danger of complaining and grumbling against our leaders and our authority, if you noticed in this verse, is who are you complaining against? He says, you're complaining me, to you, Moses, but they're complaining to me. So let me just ask this question. Who is a good complainer? We got silence like, I am. Here we go. I like you just honest, right? I am. Who's a good grumbler? Any good grumblers? Any under, talk underneath your breath kind of things or like in low voice, someone says something, turn your back. <laughs> right? The grumbling and complaining. So uh, here is the reality. Uh, When you are grumbling and complaining against the people that God has placed around you, when you are grumbling and complaining about the situation that God placed you in, I just want to encourage Christopher Peterson that he's grumbling, complaining against God. That's exactly right. And all of a sudden you're like, that doesn't seem super wise, does it? No, that seems stupid is what that sounds, right? Anybody know what the uh, Greek word for uh, foolish is? This is like one of my favorite things. So I do middle school and kids, and I was preaching to the middle school kids, and, and, I, was, and I was calling them morons. And, and uh, well, not, not them, but like just dumb things. They're like, that's kind of harsh. I'm glad your wife said that, you morons. So, right? So she's like, you can't use the word moron. That's just you can't use that word. So I was like, fine. I was going to honor my wife because I'm a good husband sometimes. And so I did my research and the Greek word for foolish, this is an epic word. It's moros. Thank you. So then Christine was like, just call them morons. That would be better than a moros. Complaining against God. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Hebrews 12.15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. So I just got a little video here as I was thinking about complaining, and when I do it, it's against God. And this is the, this is the clip God gave me. Now you're all in big, big trouble. Wow. There's like little kids there, right? You're like, do you, when you really understand what you're doing and who you're fighting against, it's kind of that clip, it's like pointless. So you, they're not going to win. When we grumble and complain against God, you are putting yourself against God. And so I would just encourage you in the situations that you find yourself in, find God in those situations because he's there. Ecclesiastes says that all seasons and all those seasons, there's a time to dance and a time to mourn and a time to sing and a time to die, all the time to build, all of those things. And then it says, and everything was beautiful in its season, in its time. So my encouragement to you is, all right, here we go. Did I miss something? Season. So that's all right. Yeah, that's okay. Here we go. So here's the reality. I'll say to our kids on Sunday morning, 
Is God awesome? Yes. Is life always awesome? Not a chance. But God is still always awesome. And my encouragement to you is, when you find yourself in those difficult situations, don't grumble and complain, because God is literally saying right there in Numbers, as they were doing that to Moses, he says they're doing it to me, and he was getting tired of it. That make sense? All right, so let's move on. Very difficult to enjoy the peace of God and the joy of God when you are complaining against God. We need to exchange our complaining with praying. God's blessings do not come from our grumbling or our questioning, but they do come in our obeying and submitting. If you are only doing what you want and like, are you living for God's will? God don't play. His promises are done his way. Oh, I'll say that again because I like that clip. God don't play. His promises are done his way. Oh. Oh. Verse 12. I love verse 12 right here. This is me. Ready? Then the people of Israel, so he's now picked the one that's going to be. So how do the other people respond? Check out verse 12. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? So notice what's happening here. Verse 12, God's selection of others. This is important. Are you ready? God's selection of others is not a rejection of you. Anybody get jealous when other people get things? Boy, I do. There was a period in my life where um, someone who I was close to, uh, man, they were just getting blessed and blessed and blessed. And the more blessed they got, the more angry I got. And I, mean, I was just mad. And then all of a sudden, it really affected the relationship. And so I wasn't doing anything with this person anymore. I wasn't talking to them. The person was trying to talk with me. It was, it was like kind of like uh, you were just, was it ghosting them? Is that what that's called now? Is that, did I use it right? Uh, okay, I'm trying, okay? All right, so anyway, I, I let their blessings get in the way, and the Lord um, just rebuked me. And I had to literally, uh, so I, I asked God to forgive, and he said, yeah, that's not going to be enough. I literally had to make an appointment to go see this person just say, dude, I just got to tell you, I have not rejoiced in your blessings. I have allowed that to get in the way, um, and it's affecting my relationship with you. It's affecting my relationship with God. God's selection of others is not a rejection of you. But notice how man responds. If I'm not picked by God, what did they say? Did you catch it? I guess I can't worship God. Literally, they said, oh, I'm not picked by God. And by the way, if you read in chapter 16, all of the people there had a job in the temple. It wasn't like they were like, desperate, homeless people looking for some kind of purpose. They had a job. They had something to do, but it wasn't enough. Anybody ever fall into that category? God's got you something, but it's not good enough. And so you're complaining because you want something else. If we have Peter there, that's me. I'm just saying, not a great place to be, right? That puts you in such a bad place. So they are uh, rejected. They weren't selected. So then they think they're rejected. 
And then because they're not picked, they don't think that they can actually worship God. That is crazy. Can I get an amen? So we're going to, my final thoughts for chapter 17 is uh, this. So in chapter 17, we've got the, it is the story of Aaron's staff that budded. It is the selection of a high priest. Numbers talks about the goodness of God. He is a good God. Can I get an amen? Also talks about the severity of God. God's wrath is real. We will give an account. Do not think that that's not going to happen. So Numbers paints that picture. But I love number 17 because it's about the high priest. It's the selection of um, Aaron. So let's look at some verses here. Number 17 is ultimately about the selection of the high priest and the sign from God. Ready? This should see if you pick up on this. And the sign from God about who would be selected by God was the budding of flowers. The sign from God about who would be selected by God was the budding flowers. So literally, who is going to be the high priest? Ready? Life from something that was dead was going to be that which would let you know who the high priest was. Now, is anybody picking up on that? That's a foreshadowing of who? Jesus, the great high priest, literally, staff, rod, something that was dead comes to what? To life. I just thought that was so awesome. Like right there, number 17, is about the grumbling and all the silliness of people. And here in it is done in such a way that it's literally foreshadowing Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus. Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Numbers actually gives us a picture of what the book of Hebrews is clear about. Jesus is our great high priest. And the sign from God was that what was once dead, Jesus on the cross in the tomb, would become alive. Empty grave. So let's stop for a second just to clarify an important truth. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called a what? What are we called? Okay, I just said it to you. So you're like, well, we weren't paying attention. We didn't think you were going to call on us. See, that's what you do in children's ministry. You call on people. Sometimes you get up on chairs. Sometimes you get right here. You just have to do things because kids sometimes don't listen. So what are we? A royal priesthood. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're called to be a royal priesthood. Now, listen, I want you to understand something. That does not mean we're royalty. Now, really, I want you to get this, but that we are set apart to do the work of royalty. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. We've got some bad theology out there, and then we start taking from God and giving to us, and that's just not super smart. We are a royal priesthood, and royal was to describe who you're the priesthood of. Here's the good news. You're the priesthood of the king. That's what that means. 
royal priesthood is talking about who you are set apart to do the work of. Not about who we are, but who we belong to. Okay? Ready? Watch this. Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is. Say is. Jesus is the image of God. Now watch this. Genesis 1.26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In our. So we are created in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. So do you guys catch the difference? There is theology out there that's called little G theology, where people literally think like, we're little gods. No. You are created in the image of God to know and love and have a relationship with God. Raise your hand if you understand that. Not to replace God or to be God. My daughter has a cat. His name is Cody. She loves him very much. But there is only so far that relationship can go. Can I get an amen? Okay, right? Anybody ever met those people who think their, their pets are people? They're weird. And if you're one of those, we're going to pray for you afterwards. They're not people. They're not people, right? So you are created, listen, in the image of God. That speaks to the fact that you get to know God and love God and have a relationship with God and talk to God and one day rule and reign with him. That's what it means to be in the image of God. Jesus is the image, but we're in the image. Does that make sense? I just think that's clear because as we get ready for the end days, you got some bad theology and people really think there's something that they're not. I'm like, no, no, he's God. I don't want to be God. I just want to worship God. Can I get an amen? So Jesus is the high priest. So let's close with this. Jesus, the great high priest. It's one of the many titles given to Jesus to reveal the truth about Jesus, to help the finite get a glimpse of the infinite. As the great high priest, we see that Jesus is set apart. He's able to offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect, complete. It was one and done by the Son. Thank you. One and done by the Son. Everything about the Son of God brings us back to the love of God. Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the humanity of Jesus, he humbles himself. It's easy to miss out on the meaning of this, and it's really quite impossible to comprehend. Now, in Revelation 4, 5, God reveals to us the throne room. John the Beloved is caught up in the Spirit, and he sees what the Bible says is indescribable. Throughout Revelation, we see words like appearance of and like all. We also see the phrase behold 25 times, which literally means check this out. So Jesus is in the throne room. The Bible says it is surrounded by sounds and it's fragrances and music and the multitudes. It's a real place designed by a real God with God at the center. This is the throne room. It's spectacular. And in it, worship is going on. People are just falling down and they're worshiping and they're singing. And in the throne room is literally Jesus. He comes as the lamb who was slain. That's where he's at. 
Now, here's how he humbles himself. The Bible says in the Nativity, Luke 1.35, that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. And Jesus was conceived. So literally the moment he's in the throne room and all of those glory, and where does he find himself? in the womb of the creation in which he created. That's, grasp that. Think of the greatest place you've ever been. That didn't even compare to heaven. Think of the greatest song you've ever heard. It's gonna be greater there. The greatest thing you've ever smelled, doesn't compare to there. The greatest lights, all that stuff, he's there. And he says, tell you what, and in a moment, he says, yep. And he goes from that, and he's in the womb of Mary, the creator and sustainer of everything, will spend the next nine months in his urine. That's embryonic fluid, people. He will pass through a small birth canal, and he will be pushed through a nine-centimeter opening. Here's what nine centimeters looks like. Right there. Some ladies are like, what? <laughs> not getting married. Guys are like, sure, glad I'm not a lady. That's nine centimeters. Jesus never stopped being God. Raise your hand if you understand that. There's some also bad theology out there. He does not stop being God. He lays that aside. So think about the fact your great high priest leaves that and says, okay, and that's where he spends the next nine months. We're talking about a whole different set of sights, sounds, and smells. Can I get an amen? That's humility. That's love. And that's why Jesus is the only one in the book of Revelation who is worthy to open the scroll. That's what made him worthy. It's kind of cool you think about that. In the throne room, he can choose what he wants to do. Anybody ever been to a wedding? Go to a wedding. Does the bride not spend a great deal of time to look just right? I mean, she spends hours, days trying to find the right dress because, listen, that moment she wants to reveal something about her. Anybody had picture day when they were growing up? I see some kids on the school bus. I'm like, dude, it's picture day, and that's what you chose. I didn't know it was picture day. They forgot, right? They didn't get the note home to their mom, right? But, but you're, you're, you're particular in how you want, what you want to reveal, I want you to think about this. In the throne room, Jesus is choosing to reveal something about him. Raise your hand if you understand that. When you read the Bible, it's not about what you see. It's about what he's revealing. So he's like, in that throne, in that massively awesome scene, when the one who's ready to get up, John cries, there's no one worthy. There's a strong angel. I can't imagine what he looks like in a place of perfect that sets him apart. And the strong angel goes, I can't do it. Jesus then sets up. And does anybody remember what he looks like? Thank you, the lamb that was slain. The great king of kings chooses to reveal himself as the lamb who was slain. He identifies with humanity. He identifies with us. That's how he chooses to reveal himself. What a loving, loving picture. That is our great high priest who is worthy. That question being asked there in heaven should be asked here. Who is worthy? 
Who is worthy to save? Who is worthy to forgive? Who is worthy to command our obedience? Who is worthy to decide right from wrong? Who is worthy to make us a new creation? Who is worthy of our praise, worship, and love? The answer here on earth is the same as it was there. Jesus and his humanity makes him worthy to be king over all humanity. Worthy to judge the world. Why? Because he was the one willing to leave that and come down and take that punishment on the cross and save us from that judgment. Do you guys get that? How does the loving God, how, yeah, how does the loving God leave the glories of heaven and then literally face everything you faced? Think about that. What's the worst thing, you close your eyes, what's the worst thing you've ever experienced? He faced it. Rejection, anything you've done, he leaves that, comes down, and then lives life, faces and does everything that you do, feels it all dies on the cross for your sin. So what makes a loving God do that? How can a loving God do that? How does a loving God do that? How does he do that? I can't imagine leaving that. So what makes him worthy to judge us is the fact that he died to save us from that judgment. What a great God. What a great high priest. He is worthy to judge the world because he's the one who saved us from the judgment we deserve. So let's talk about judgment. What are some things about this fallen world that you hate? Just think about that. What are some things you hate? Okay, does anybody, I love this world. Just love everything that's going on in my life. I love the way my parents talk to me every minute of the day. I love my boss, love homework. We just love it, right? Can we all agree that there's things in this world that are just jacked up, right? Now listen, why does there have to be judgment? so that the things that are jacked up can be taken care of and gone away with. Does that mean do you guys grasp that? That's why there has to be judgment, so that those things can be gotten away with, so that one day we can rule and reign with him in perfection. That's why he must judge, so that those things that we hate will not be with us in that perfect place, the new heaven and earth. It's important that we see the love of God in the judgments of God. It's important that we see that Jesus is revealing as the lamb slain because we must see his love in the difficulties that we encounter. People often say, if God was loving, why would he allow blank? But the truth is, because God is a loving God, he himself experienced all of those things, voluntarily and personally. Jesus, our great high priest, went through everything that we have gone through. The judgments that will come, Jesus is worthy to judge, and we must see him as the lamb who was slain that saved and delivered us from judgment. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.